0: This episode of For Real is brought to you by Riding the Edge by Michael S. Tobin from River Grove Books. 47 years ago, Michael discovered his soulmate Deborah on a dance floor in Keene, New Hampshire. It took her soul a few years and an around-the-world bike track to fully reciprocate. Riding the Edge is the astonishing tale of the six-month odyssey that profoundly shaped the next 564 months of their lives together. Writing the Edge is a personal memoir and travel journal that Kirkus Reviews says is powerfully engaging. Readers will be eager to learn how this passionate yet volatile relationship with Deborah developed and how traveling to locations that shaped their lineage impacted them psychologically and emotionally. Taking place in 1980, Michael and Deborah, an American Jew and American Arab, respectively leave the security of their well-ordered lives as psychologists sleepwalking toward marriage and family to explore and take risks in search of life's larger truths. Readers can find a discussion guide, photos from Michael and Deborah's journey, and more at www.drmichaeltobin.com. That is www.drmichaeltobin.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow writer Kim Euchara. We're recording on Saturday, July 31st. Hello,
1: Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today?
0: Well, I- I'm good. Um, Lollapalooza is going on in Chicago right now, and there are so many youths walking around. Uh, it's a...
1: A little jarring. Oh boy, the youths. Oh, that's rough. Um, how are you doing? You know, we were talking about before Minnesota's in the middle of there's wildfires in Canada, and Minnesota is getting a lot of the like smoke, so we're under like these air quality alerts, which is just like unsettling. But I have been watching a lot of the Olympics, which has been very fun for me. Um, my sister loves the Olympics, and so we're kind of watching it all the time that we're around, which is – I always love watching the weird sports, so uh, we spent some time watching um, Olympic trampoline this morning. Well, wow. We watched some archery, uh, and I've been watching a lot of women's volleyball, so it's fun. I like that. How about you?
0: I wish the archers made, like, Robin Hood references as they were, like <laughs> – knocking their arrows uh yeah. i well in terms of olympics i got up early to watch the women's softball final which ah. was u.s versus japan which japan won the last time the soft uh, softball was in the olympics in 2008 and they won again <laughs> it was kind of a bummer but yeah but i will say they looked so happy and they had a new pitcher who was like 20 years old and she was really good and um, so it was kind of like, I was bummed out for uh, Team USA, but because they didn't get their like, redemption moment from 2008. Mm-hmm. But um, the I don't know, Japan did really well. So yay.
1: Yeah, that's very exciting. Yeah, we've been watching a lot of gymnastics too. So it's been good. I have one piece of quick follow-up. So uh, last week for Reading Now, I talked about that I was going to pick up Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death, and Hard Truths in a Northern City by Tanya Talaga, uh, which is a nonfiction book about um, the deaths of some indigenous youths in Canada. I'm almost done with it, and it is really, really good, um, but also obviously really, really sad and i'm really interested in the way that she's connecting the kind of deaths in the sort of contemporary part of the story with the history of residential schools in Canada which the United States also has a history of residential schools for indigenous kids and like connecting those things together and i think it's really fascinating and important so i i'm not quite done but i feel pretty confident recommending seven fallen feathers by Tanya Talaga
0: oh nice yeah um the everything that's coming out about residential schools is uh pretty horrific
1: yeah it's really sobering um and i she does a nice job of kind of giving a history of that and also connecting it to sort of how it has rippled out which in a kind of quick and accessible way so i think that's impressive too in the middle of a more general like true crime kind of book yeah cool uh all right our second sponsor for this week is Chicago Review Press and the book Cockneyed Happy, Ernest Hemingway's Wyoming Summers with Pauline by Darla Warden. So in Cockneyed Happy, Darla Warden tells the little known story of Hemingway and Pauline during six summers from nineteen twenty eight to nineteen thirty nine, from Switten newlywed to bored Ratzel's husband, and ultimately to philanderer as he falls in love with another woman once again. Uh, Ruth Hawkins, author of Unbelievable Happiness and Final Sorrow, wrote: "Darla Warden has written a captivating book that reads like a novel, yet is thoroughly researched with factual attention to detail. Her descriptions of time and place resemble a travelogue that makes you want to experience the area for yourself, despite the changes since Hemingway's time. Warden's book is a refreshing addition to Hemingway scholarship." So that is Cockneyed Happy: Ernest Hemingway's Wyoming Summers with Pauline by Darla Warden from Chicago Review Press.
0: This is Pauline Pfeiffer for anyone interested in reading more about her.
1: Yes. Thank you. Excellent addition. So with that, we will jump into nonfiction in the news, uh, things that are happening in the world of nonfiction books right now. Um, we have two uh, things to share. Both are upcoming books that we know some a little bit about one set and a lot about another one. So... The first one I have is uh, that over the last couple of weeks, it was announced that Prince Harry has signed a $20 million deal with publisher Penguin Random House uh, after he's been working on his memoirs over the last year, which, like, it's quite an intense year to be working on your memoir, uh, I would say. Um, but it came out a few days later that the contract with Penguin Random House is actually for multiple books, including um, a book from his wife, the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. So they The deal is for four books, including one that Harry and Meghan are working on together about leadership and philanthropy. Um, According to this Vanity Fair article, the Duchess of Sussex is also um, potentially working on a memoir of her own, as well as a book on wellness. So that is uh, interesting. You know I love Harry and Meghan. So uh, books in their own words, I think, will be really interesting because I don't know that I'm, I'm, like, just sort of speaking off the cuff because I don't really know, but it I don't think a lot of royals write their own memoirs. Like, I think they rely on biographers and stuff to do that. So I think it's interesting that they're going to do memoirs as a format, especially, like, in their position as stepping back as senior royals and all of that. So I don't know. I think it has potential to be really interesting, both of them.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think uh, just based on my own sort of scattered knowledge about the British royal family, I think that's correct. Or if someone does write a memoir, it's someone who married into the family and then, like, mm-hmm. got divorced or something. So, um, yeah, I think they probably keep a pretty tight leash on those
1: in general. Yeah, right? The, the whole institution of the royal family is very tight. So I imagine writing personal memoirs is not high on the list of things they encourage people to do. Yeah. And our other news item is um, – I was really excited about this just from growing
0: up in the 90s with SNL. Molly Shannon is writing a memoir – this is oh it's coming out april 12th 2022 this is in a people magazine article that we will link in the show notes uh it's coming out it's gonna be published by echo she is going to be writing as with many comedians uh sort of ha- she has like more a sort of a darker past than one might assume based on how hilarious she is it seems like those things go together frequently and it's essentially that when she was four, her father was driving under the influence and there was a car crash and her mother, her little sister and cousin died. Her father was very badly injured. So the book is uh, her relationship with him, um, how it sort of influenced her comedy. Uh, the book is – the, it says the result is hilarious and heartbreaking. So, uh as as a a book on the whole. So, I'm excited about this coming out. I would probably check it out on audiobook just because I feel like books by comedians tend to be at their peak on audio. Mm-hmm. Do you <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> 100 you know percent I mean? agree,
0: yep, my gosh. also, I am a huge fan of the movie superstar. I don't know the general consensus on it. I know it was frequently in the best Buy five dollar DVD bin. so it <laughs> seems like maybe not not seen as like the the pinnacle of comedy, but I love that movie.
1: yeah, that is real yeah, that sounds like a really good one and I 100 percent agree with you on the audio recommendation. I think books by comedians are always always great on audio, especially if they read them themselves, which most of them do. so excellent. Yeah. Oh.
0: Oh. Wait. Real quick. I just wanted to do a sidebar that when I was like, let's say thirteen, maybe I was very briefly obsessed with Molly Shannon. I don't know why. Don't know where it came from. And I watched a lot of her early movies, <laughs> which her first movie was like a adapt like a gory adaptation of Phantom of the Opera, uh, <laughs> starring Robert England, who I believe was Freddy Krueger. And uh, so they were kind of just continuing that thing. And then I also watched. Night at the Roxbury, the movie, so many times.
1: Oh, gosh. That's a deep dive. Yeah. Okay, I'm done. Excellent. All right. So with that, we will shift gears into new nonfiction, which is books that are out recently or coming out soon that we think you might be excited about. So my first pick is The Quiet Zone, Unraveling the Mystery of a Town Suspended in Silence by Stephen Kersey, which I love that title. And so this book is a portrait of an Appalachian town where – He calls it the last truly quiet town in America because the town, Green Bank, West Virginia, is home to the Green Bank Observatory, which is this really big telescope and um, radio frequency observatory that is used for searching into the universe for like signals and uh, radio waves and stuff. And so in order for the observatory and this piece of equipment to work, there cannot be any other radio frequencies in the town. So there's no Wi-Fi. They can't really use cell phones within the quiet zone around the town. Microwaves can interfere with it. There was an anecdote early in the book about how the radio waves or the whatever waves they use for, like, automatic doors at a um, shopping uh, facility were interfering and that the, like, scanners inside this door were. And so they had to paint the whole building with this, like, reflective kind of paint so that the radio signals wouldn't come out of it to interfere. So it's this town where for this whole space around it, like – You're just completely disconnected from the world in the way that most of us are used to it. Like if you go out, you don't have a cell phone because your cell phone doesn't work until you get kind of past the mountains and away from it. And so this reporter decides to embed in Green Bank because he is he has this rant at the beginning kind of about how he never has a cell phone and doesn't want to be connected. And I was a little like, okay, man, like, whatever. Good for you. (laughs) (laughs) But then, like, that sort of frames his interest in this place of like, is it even possible or desirable to be in a place where you cannot be connected in some way? And so he kind of embeds himself there. He lives there for a while with his wife. And then he just starts like profiling the different people who live there and what their role there is. And some of them are connected to the observatory, some of them are just people who happen to live there. So there's this guy who, his whole job when he worked there was just to go around finding illegal radio waves and then telling people to stop using them people who go there because they think that Wi-Fi is potentially deadly, and so they want to live in a place where it's not there. And then this string of unsolved murders dating back decades from this community. Um, just all sorts of interesting stories about people who live in this place. And so the whole point of the book is sort of profiling this, but also asking, is having a life that is less connected desirable or even possible? And so it's kind of a dedication to place. There's some investigative journalism and a look at technology. And I just, it's really... It's really interesting. I was like absorbed from the first chapter because it feels like just such a different and interesting place. And then him writing about like going there and all of a sudden the things he wasn't able to sort of use or access anymore, like they, they can't get on Google Maps. So they're trying to like find the place they're going to live and they can't find it because they they don't have maps. And I just I just thought it was really interesting and a a different kind of take on a lot of books about like technology and our connection and what it means to be connected or disconnected in the way that we are now. So that is The Quiet Zone, Unraveling the Mystery of a Town Suspended in Silence by Stephen Kersey. Okay. I was
0: going to do this one and then I saw that you had added it to our, yes. our show notes and I was like, oh shoot. But I read a decent amount of it and oh, yeah, I was I, it's really good. It's really interesting. I had like a long talk with my wife about it. It just even like the small part that I read, I was like, oh, yeah, this guy and he goes to this place. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what is life without cell phones? And how connected are we to that? Like it just like promoted a lot of conversation. And uh, I am extremely addicted to my phone. So, you know, also sort of thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was funny when you cited his rant about cell phones. Now he doesn't have a smartphone Mm -hmm. at the beginning because I absolutely felt the same way. It was just like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) I get it. Yeah.
1: You're like a Luddite and you're not on Facebook even though you're a journalist and it's fine. And yeah. (laughs) But like also stuff that he talks about, like
0: the person who when Congress, I think it was Congress, was going to make it so that in order to access your social security benefits, you had to have a smartphone. And then someone being like, okay, well, what about people who choose not to have one, let alone the people who cannot afford to have Mm -hmm. one? You know what I mean? Like it's all about an access issue. And so many things now are only accessible via smartphone technology. Yeah. And that just feels like that needs something of a reset. But anyway, I just wanted to talk a little more about that book. It's really interesting. Excellent. Thank you for adding that. Okay, a uh, big pivot. I <laughs> am talking about The Viking Heart, How Scandinavians Conquered the World by Arthur Herman. It's out August 3rd from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. So I I think that the title of this is interesting. So with the whole How Scandinavians Conquered the World thing, true. And what this book is talking about is how we still have this, like, Viking legacy with us today. And we do, like, in terms of words like legs and not to automatically go with a rhyme, but eggs like all <laughs> these words are Viking words hmm. and uh, or like Old Norse or whatever, you know. Because um, they came to England, and they settled there for a while. And then, you know, there's just like all this heritage. So he talks about that. But I also was literally this morning uh, of recording this listening to a podcast where someone was talking about uh, the Viking legacy. And they asked, like, you know, did Vikings have like, you know, the the biggest influence on us? And it's just unknown. And The woman being interviewed, who's like a a Viking history authority, was like, "No," (laughs) she was like, "This is very clearly the Greeks and the Romans." But, (laughs) however, however, I do think that the purpose of this book, right, is to talk about the ways they did influence us. So. For uh, millennia, you had Norwegians, Danes, Finns, Swedes, and they they lived in this separate existence from the rest of the world. And like, you know, these fjords and uh, it's as peaks of the land of the midnight sun. Uh, But then they decided to go out and they started doing raids and they started settling. And they went to Rome, they went to Russia, they went to Constantinople, they went to Canada, uh, which is where, you know, we have Viking settlements and like, uh, or not settlements, but, you know, like remains of, of Viking Visits in Labrador and uh, just the east coast of Canada. Mm -hmm. So, in this, Arthur Herman, he sort of talks about the historical narrative of the history of the Vikings and where they went, what they did, and also combines it with archaeological and DNA research to talk about how the Vikings are still with us, right? Obviously, they had kids. Those kids had kids. We have lots of people with Viking DNA. Mm -hmm. One of the things I thought was the most Probably relevant to the current moment that he talks about is saying that the DNA investigations have demolished this myth that the Vikings had like a single race or a nation, Mm -hmm. which uh, he says this myth underlaid the Nazi ideology of Nordic racial purity and that there are these white nationalists who still cling to this, right? Being like, oh, like the Viking people. And he's like, no, no, no. The Viking people were a lot of different people. (laughs) Like, it wasn't just this one race, Mm -hmm. which I was like, yes, (laughs) bring in those facts. So I don't know. Also, Vikings are just really popular right now. So let's all learn more about some of the facts about them. Honestly, reading this definitely made me want to restart the show Vikings from the Street Channel, (laughs) which uh i've heard from at least one viking scholar they said that they don't do a terrible job with that
1: show so that's a that's a ringing endorsement
0: yeah 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 (laughs) um okay so again that is the viking heart how scandinavians conquered the world by arthur herman
1: oh that sounds good yeah really interesting and like yeah the idea that the vikings are not just like one person but like many kinds of people all together and yeah very cool All right, so my next pick is a is a pivot. It's called Lifelines: A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health by Doctor Doctor Leanna Wen. So Leanna Wen was she is an emergency physician. She used to be the health commissioner of the city of Baltimore. She's a CNN medical analyst and contributes contributes to the Washington Post. And so she has spent her entire life and career on the front lines of public health, which I think is. Obviously, very significant based on what we have all experienced over the last couple of years. So, this book is about her experiences in public health, but also um, a memoir about her uh, her story. She was a, her parents and her, or she and her parents immigrated from China when she was a young girl. They lived in Utah and then Los Angeles because her mother uh, was first going to school, and then they were trying to find work. She grew up a lot on like public assistance, uh, food stamps, and uh, but the, her family experienced homelessness. Her parents had to work multiple jobs. And so her kind of experiences as a child informed a lot of what she did later as a physician and thinking about a really expansive view of public health and that it involves not just like medicine, but also many of these other social safety net kinds of services that people need access to. And so she, um, despite like that kind of challenge coming to the United States not speaking English, experiencing homelessness and all of that she went she started college when she was 13 which um she writes about how that wasn't necessarily because she was a great scholar but a part of a a necessity almost for their family based on like their economic situation at the time. Um, She eventually became a Rhodes Scholar and then turned to public health as a way that she thought that she could make a difference in the United States. And so she talks then about her experiences fighting the opioid epidemic, infectious diseases, maternal and infant mortality, and then COVID-19 disinformation. And so she... Um, what I like about this one, uh, the memoir part is really well done. Um, she's not like a flashy writer, but it's like very just it's still good. Like she still is is a good storyteller and is really um open about her experiences and her family's experiences and what those challenges were for them. But then she has this very, I think, expansive view of what public health includes, which I appreciate because I I guess within I don't, I don't know why this is true but like I haven't really thought a lot about what public health is until the last couple of years when we've really seen public health and public health departments being called on to to provide a lot of information and do a lot of work. And so um she talks about how public health may have saved your life today you just don't even know because There's good public health is invisible until it's not until we need it in kind of a pandemic or like a crisis situation. And so I think that that perspective is really interesting. And I'm I'm interested to learn more about it, particularly after the last year. So that is Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey and the Fight for Public Health by Dr. Leanna Wen.
0: Oh, that sounds really interesting, especially just like how these other services tie in. Yeah. And impact public health.
1: Yeah, I agree. I also hadn't really thought
0: about it until recently. Yeah. I I feel like we're having more and more of these types of books come out or I'm just becoming more aware of them and Mm -hmm. it just uh, makes me happy. So my next new release is Wasps The (laughs) Splendors and Miseries of an American Aristocracy by Michael Knox Barron. I had previously read a book by Michael Knox Barron which was Murder by Candlelight uh, which was (laughs) about murders in the Romantic era in England. So like early 19th century and I mean, I don't need to get too into this because it's not this book, but he wrote about stuff involving um, how basically it was, it was distasteful for us to read these detective stories where it reduces murder to a puzzle because, you know, murder is a very serious thing. And it made me at least be more thoughtful about that kind of thing, even while I keep reading Agatha Christie. <laughs> um, but anyway, so in this book, He uh, traces the rise and fall of the wasp ideal. Um, And wasp, I had someone recently ask me what this was, and it's white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I feel like this term is falling out of use. And Mm -hmm. that's just based on my day-to-day imbibing of pop culture. Um, So I don't know if that's real. But I, I think that people are identifying much less, not even I think, people are identifying much less with organized religion and therefore probably with Protestantism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that also when this term became very big, the split between like Protestant and Catholic was much more pronounced than it is now. So it it was much more of a defining term. But anyway, so in this, he goes from 19th century New England to the burial of George H.W. Bush in 2018. He talks about... Franklin Delano Roosevelt's attempt to, you know, like have this middle course between reform wasps and Wall Street wasps during the Great Depression. He talks about how the Vietnam War and public scandals and takedowns by people, including Truman Capote, tarnished the wasp image in the 1960s, which I think it's funny, tarnished the wasp image, because I feel like it was never that great. (laughs) (laughs) But um, these, I mean, at the very least, I think that the American... Idea of the the WASP, right? If you look at like you know these sort of like American patricians, mm-hmm. um, has been sort of like envied or like see, You know, you think about like yeah, uh, these people vacationing in like Martha's Vineyard and that kind of thing, and it's definitely this kind of at a remove culture. And so going into the history of that and how it's kind of declined. Um, I think is, is very interesting. So again, that is Wasps The Splendors and Miseries of an American Aristocracy by
1: Michael Knox Barron. That's yeah, that sounds really fascinating. I feel like I haven't heard the term wasp used as much lately either. So yeah, like the kind of poking or exploring that a little bit, I think could be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. awesome. So um, for my last one, I actually just want to do three quick picks. I Because I've been watching so much of the Olympics, I haven't been reading very much, so I didn't get to preview any of these in the depth that I was hoping, but they all sound really great, and so I wanted to just mention them. The first one is Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina by Georgina Pescaguin, which I talked about, I think, in our um, preview episode, but it is about a memoir by a New York City ballet soloist uh, who calls herself the rogue ballerina who gives a backstage tour of the world of elite ballet, the gritty, hilarious, and sometimes shocking truth you don't see from the orchestra circle. So that memoir is one I was really excited about. The second one is called Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires, which feels um, particularly relevant Uh, And it is an account of female inmate firefighters who battle wildfires in California. Um, I knew that California uses inmate crews to help with their uh, firefighting efforts, but I didn't know that there were all female crews. And so this book explores that and also kind of looks at some of the climate change impacts happening in California. Also connecting female inmates fighting fires to economic disparity, historical injustice, and um, their various histories. So I think that sounds fascinating and then the final one is one i just saw a couple of days ago that looks really good so it's learning in public lessons for a racially divided america from my daughter's school by courtney martin and this is a book about a school called El- emerson elementary which is a public school down the street from the author's oakland home she learned that white families in their gentrifying had kind of avoided this majority black school and so she started to try to understand why And I – like, school gentrification and school – racial school politics is really fascinating. And so this is sort of uh, one school and one family's story, but also is connected to some really much bigger themes around that. So that one also sounds great. Yeah, those all sound really good. I know. There's so much good nonfiction right now.
0: I just – oh, my gosh, yeah. I just saw an article come out about the Jamie Lowe book about uh, female inmate firefighters. Mm. So it's getting some buzz. Good. That's what I'm saying. My last pick – It is Violent Order, Essays on the Nature of Police by David Correa and Tyler Wall, out August 3rd from Haymarket Books. Haymarket tends to publish (laughs) a little more of the revolutionary sort of book. Yeah, yeah. Um, When when I saw this, I was interested because I feel like I don't have all the information. And that, of course, as a nonfiction person, is very annoying to me. Mm -hmm. So... I picked this up to see sort of like uh what their thesis is, etc. And they start off being like 2020 was a big change and talking about the difference between 2020 and 2014 when you had the murders of uh, Eric Garner and Michael Brown, Sandra Bland and Freddie Gray followed by a lot of uprisings around Black Lives Matter and just kind of, you know, how was this different in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd? And their theory is that what was new was this shift in community demands, quote, that dispensed with allusions, uh, illusions with an A, about what policing is good for, instead asserting policing itself as the problem, which I would agree. I, I think that we didn't have that kind of rhetoric as loudly in 2014. And that was definitely, it felt like one of the main things being promoted it, it like, during last summer, which, oh my gosh, I can't believe that was only last summer. Mm-hmm. So... They talk about that, they call policing a set of practices um, empowered by the state to enforce law and maintain social control and cultural hegemony through the use of force and um, this misunderstanding of what policing is and does fuels these attempts to apply half measures rather than transform policing or the conditions in which it is legitimated. It's definitely got a lot of sort of... It, it basically puts forward this idea about this is what policing is. This is how we can change it slash, you know, sort of like rechannel the funds and allocations to it, which I think is interesting to read about, even if you disagree with it, just for knowing, you know, like this is the uh, argument put forward. And they break it down to like disrupting order. Um, they talk about police violence in the Central Valley. Um, The nature of police, which is like policing pipelines, and the capillaries of capital in a warming world, which I thought was interesting, mm. and the armed friendlies of settler order. There's a lot of, like, kind of, like, interesting wordplay going on in this book, and, uh, again, I wanted to highlight it just to... Mainly sort of, like, if you are kind of, like, I would like more information on what the arguments are here, this is one for that. So that is Violent Order, Essays on the Nature of Police by David Correa and Tyler
1: Wall. Yeah, that's a really good pick. Haymarket Books does some really interesting titles and, like, just stuff that kind of comes at things from a completely different perspective than, like, tr- like sort of mainstream publishing often will. So I think that's a great pick. They're a nonprofit press, right? Uh, I think so. I think they are, and they have like giant sales all the
0: time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which which they can do because of their nonprofit thing. Uh, okay, let's get into our second sponsor, which is Joy by Samantha Zenon. So, Joy is uh, Joy, the five lights that clarify your best self through the pain, is a self help memoir book about healing from cultural and generational traumas. These wounds are not healed until we take care of them. Whether you were physically, emotionally, or mentally abused, you are not a victim. You've never been one. You were victimized. You can rise above. The key is to show up for yourself and submit to do the work. Learn to live the life you want by healing from your pains. Uh, In this book, Xenon shares five lights, which are boundaries, prioritizing self, seeking help, self-care ritual, and creating me, the person. Uh, Xenon wants to inspire others to heal themselves so future generations can live a more joyous and fulfilling life because a better society starts at home. This book is out now. Uh, Again, that is Joy, The Five Lights That Clarify Your Best Self Through the Pain by Samantina
1: Xenon. Excellent. Thank you for sponsoring. All right. So this week, our weekly theme is one that is inspired by uh, your upcoming trip, which is to Disney. So we thought we would talk about some books about disney in various ways i don't know do you want to add anything else before we start i mean we'll see what's gonna
0: happen (laughs) (laughs) that's true yeah yeah at this point i know sorry my wife and I have recently been like, okay, so when do we decide whether or not to go? I was yeah. so excited about going. I've never gone to Disney World. I went to Disneyland once as an adult uh, and like in general. But um, we have the whole thing planned because it's like coming up and, you know, we just have a lot of – we want we want to be safe. So we're trying yeah. to – as with many people probably right now with vacations, we're trying to balance mm. those two things.
1: Yeah. So yeah,
0: but I'm excited to talk about books around it.
1: Yes, yes. Are you like a big Disney person, would you say, or just like an I I'm I'm just curious like are you would you consider yourself a Disney enthusiast? I was going to say
0: I felt like you were going to say enthusiast and that feels more accurate. Yeah. I've watched a lot of YouTube videos of people who are Disney people, mm-hmm. and I love that they love something so much. And because I I love that about almost anything if someone is just very into something. Mhm. People have like Disney rooms, Disney homes. They will be so into like merch or not merch, like, like props from mm-hmm. Disneyland that, you know, it's like this lamp was in the resort of, you know, and I'm just like, oh, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, if that makes them really happy, then that's yeah. amazing. Um, and it's kind of good to just sort of like, I don't know, like vicariously enjoy. Personally, I, I'm an enormous fan of the movies and obviously like grew up with cuz it was the 90s. Grew up with Disney songs and mm-hmm. those just mean a lot to me. And I think that that's kind of my like I'm not going to go and like see Belle and like be overwhelmed, but that that being said, I did I did see a video with Cinderella's stepsisters like as characters at Disney World <laughs> and I like almost lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're so funny.
1: That's funny. That's excellent. Uh, all right. So my first pick for this segment is uh, Disney's Land, Walt Disney and the Invention of the Amusement Park that Changed the World by Richard Snow. And this is a book that came out in 2019. And it is a book chronicling the conception and creation of Disneyland in Anaheim, California. So The the genesis for Disneyland was in the 1950s. Walt Disney looked over this farmland in Anaheim, California and wanted to build a park where, quote, people could live among Mickey Mouse and Snow White in a world still powered by steam and fire for a day or a week or, if the visitor is slightly mad, forever. Nobody wanted him to do this. His brother, who did the company's (laughs) finances, did not think it was a good idea. The bankers didn't think it was a good idea. His wife, Lillian, thought it was a real bad idea. The reputation for amusement parks at the time was, like, bad. They were, like, considered bad businesses. They were kind of sordid, and people shouldn't do that. But Disney was like, no, I am still going to do this. And so he financed the park against his own insurance policy, his life insurance, and then got some sponsorship from ABC where he traded – like TV rights and stuff for sponsorship of the park. He got together this team of engineers and architects, animators, landscapers, and everybody to try to make this a reality. And so in 1955, Disneyland opened and the first day was terrible. Disney, really thought that he had failed but then people kind of kept coming and kept coming and the rest is uh, history. Disneyland is a huge success now. So the author is a historian and he presents sort of just like the whole the whole story from like the day that Disney had the idea to the opening day and what we think about since. It was interesting because I picked up the book and I was looking at it and I thought this is going to be very like straight kind of nonfiction facts kind of things, but he actually does a lot of storytelling in it. Like every chapter is, it's really about people and about their experiences and their um, connections to this park, like the people who helped make it a reality. So it's it's much more... It's much more story-driven than I was anticipating, just, like, given the size of it and, and what it looks like from the cover. So it's kind of cool. Um, there's also some, like, memoir kind of elements where he talks about, like, his connections to Disney and his love for the parks and that kind of stuff, which I can kind of take or leave in the grand scheme of things. But um, it's really interesting so far. It's, um, you know, I, I'm i not really an amusement park person. Like, I I you know, they're, like, fine, but I'm not super, like, enthused about it. And so – but just, like – getting a perspective on, like, what people even thought at the time and, like, how this was such a – like, Disney and Disneyland and Disney World are just so ubiquitous now and, like, it is such a a thing that people do. It's interesting to learn about how it, at the time, was, like, people thought it was really going to fail. So that's kind of fascinating. So uh, Disneyland, Walt Disney, and the Invention of the Amusement Park that Changed the World by Richard Snow.
0: Do you remember in Jurassic Park when <laughs>
1: John Hammond
0: was talking about how when they opened Disneyland, nothing worked. And Ian Malcolm <laughs> says, yes, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't, but that's hilarious. Oh, gosh, what a good movie.
0: Anyway. Okay, my first pick, I've talked about this on here before, but I really liked this book. Mm-hmm. It is The Queens of Animation, The Untold Story of the Women Who Transformed the World of Disney and Made Cinematic History by Natalia Holt. Um, Natalia Holt also wrote Rise of the Rocket Girls, so she's kind of into this you know, like hidden history of women thing. And it goes, uh, starting with Snow White, so Disney's first full-length animated feature, going to Moana, really focusing near the end on Frozen, because that, uh, I believe, was... I don't know. Was it helmed by a woman? I don't remember. I read this book on an airplane a while ago. But it's really fascinating because it starts with, you know, sort of like Bianca Majoli, who went to high school with Walt Disney, and she was contributing first. And then Grace Huntington worked on Snow White and Bambi and then broke aviation records. And then uh, there were these uh, Sylvia Holland, Ethel Kulsar, who basically wanted to do The Little Mermaid. But like, A Mm -hmm. very long time before The Little Mermaid happened. And, gosh, and, like, Mary Blair, you know, doing the art for things like It's a Small World and her, you know, like, concept art being hugely influential in early Disney films. I feel like if anyone of these artists is known, it's usually Mary Blair just because her style is so, like, iconic. Mm -hmm. And I just, like, I don't know. There was so much info about – just I didn't know. (laughs) Like, I didn't know a lot in the first place. But – When you hear about Disney animators, you hear about, like, Ub Iwerks, or, you know, like, these, like, men who design these characters, and you don't hear about these women and their contributions, and the absolute, like, sexism and sexual harassment they faced at work. Like, this woman was, like, chased around her desk, literally, and it's like, this is your work colleague. Just all this stuff people had to go through to reach the point where we are now, which is still obviously not perfect, but uh, much better in general than it was in the 1940s. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, that is The Queens of Animation, The Untold Story of the Women Who Transformed the World of Disney and Made Cinematic History by Natalia Holt.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you talked about that one. It's on my TBR and I keep meaning to pick it up and I keep not, but it sounds fascinating. So I'm glad you talked about it again. Yeah. All right, so my next pick is, I think, a little bit of a weird one. And I came across it because I was trying to find books for the segment. And so I just searched Disney nonfiction at my local library. And I put a bunch of books on hold. And this is, the one that, this is one of the ones that came. And I picked it up. And I was like, this is weird. But I feel like it's right in my wheelhouse. And so I wanted to talk about it. So the book is called Project Future, The Inside Story Behind the Creation of Disney World by Chad Denver Emerson. Uh, this book came out in 2010 from a company called i4 Publishing, which doesn't exist anymore as far as I can tell and from what i could tell from their old website and stuff they really just published a few books on disney and then they're gone now so to me it feels almost huh. like a like vanity self publishing kind of project but like they did do some books on disney so it, they're they're legit so the author Chad Emerson was a professor of property land planning and intellectual property at the at Falker University. And so he started this book by he was doing research on improvement districts, which are these public private partnerships where businesses pay taxes in order to support improvements on a certain area and then the public side of it also puts in some you know puts in some contributions and that's how they like do some development um which is That's one kind of way to do that, right? And so this book is about the Reedy Creek Improvement District in Central Florida, which is the improvement district where Disney World is built. And so... This book is about like the 12 years of research that Disney or the 12 years that Disney conducted research and surveys and work in secret trying to figure out where to build Disney World in Orlando, Florida. And so the the resort is located on what was once thousands of acres of swamp and marshland. And so they needed to come up with this improvement district in order to even make the property possible to build on. But they wanted to keep it a really big secret. And so there's a lot of like backroom kind of stuff. And. Like just a lot of behind the scenes how about the project, which was codenamed Project Future and how they were able to do that really in secret. And it is like it's a pretty slim little book. It's it feels like almost like an academic dissertation but like has some like sort of story flair in it. Um I was reading other reviews on the internet and Jose, a reviewer on Goodreads said the book has novelesque brings novelesque flair to the description of a real estate transaction report, uh which I thought was really perfect. So yeah, if you're looking for just something kind of, like, under the radar and a little strange, but really about, like, the the government and public-private partnership that helps make Disney World, uh, this one might be an interesting one to pick up. So that is Project Future, the inside story behind the creation of Disney World by Chad Denver Emerson.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's so nerdy. I
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, nerd Alice on this one. Oh, my gosh. You did. And I was, like, proud of the
0: one I'm about to talk about. So... Okay, this is Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Disney Cartoons by David A. Bossard and David Gerstein. So I had never heard of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And this book, it's a little expensive. I think I saw it around the $50 mark, but it's because it's got like a lot of like really cool pictures and stuff. But if you're interested, maybe check out your library. So Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was created in 1927 and uh, Disney and his team did 26 cartoon shorts. But uh, Disney lost the contract to Oswald and then had to, like, finish out the shorts. But he was pretty salty about losing the contract. And so he, with his lead animator of iWorks, created Mickey Mouse uh, the following year. So Oswald was 1927, Mickey Mouse was 1928. And uh, they uh, they have some kind of appearance similarities, yeah, sort of. Yeah, they do. I mean, you know, yeah, like, rabbits and mice don't look super different. I mean, I know they look different,
1: but, like... You know, cartoon versions, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I thought this was really fascinating just from even, like, you know, if you're into Mickey Mouse at all or the history of Disney, finding out, like, what this, like, origin story is. And what I thought was really interesting was that – so they talk about how it's not – It's not about, you know, the creation of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. It's more about Walt Disney's evolution as he kind of got better at animation and wanted to do something different than what was being done. And they said Oswald was one of the first cartoon characters that had personality And he didn't, Disney didn't want it to just be a rabbit character animated and shown, you know, kind of like they had these like, you know, like Felix the cat Mm. and like, just like these, you know, whatever. And he wanted it to, uh, he wanted to make Oswald peculiarly and typically Oswald. So just make this character, you know, not like, oh, it's a rabbit, whatever. But it's like, oh, no, that's Oswald the rabbit. And you can definitely see this with Mickey Mouse, right? Like there are things that are just, it's not like it's, it's not because he's a mouse. It's just like, it's Mickey Mouse. And that's his thing. So just from that perspective alone, uh, this feels worth reading. And I'm not even a big Mickey Mouse fan. Mm-hmm. but It was like, he's so just all over our culture yeah. that it's it feels um, worthwhile, I guess, to kind of get the backstory on mm-hmm. it. And again, there's just there's so many drawings. And it's such a um, it's one of those books that it's like the deluxe edition, um, which I enjoy from time to time. So again, that is Oswald, The Lucky Rabbit: The Search for the Lost Disney cartoons by David A. Bossard and David Gerstein.
1: That sounds fascinating. I had no idea that there was like a character before Mickey Mouse that really was part of Disney. so oh,
0: that's a that's a really good one. And it feels like Mickey Mouse was created out of Spite, which is also kind of fun.
1: <laughs> it's very satisfying to know that even Walt Disney did things out of Spite. <laughs> All right, with that, we will close the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books that we are reading right now. Um, The book that I am planning to pick up today is An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination by Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kang. Um, They're both New York Times reporters, one in technology and regulatory policy, the other in cybersecurity. Um, They were both part of a 2019 New York Times team who won a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting. Um, And this book, quote, takes readers inside the complex court politics, alliances, and rivalries within the company to shine a light on the fatal cracks in the architecture of the tech behemoth. It is a book about kind of the inside story of Facebook, which um, my job, my day job is a lot of social media, and I find Facebook really frustrating. And so I'm interested in a book that's like, yeah, Facebook is kind of terrible. (laughs) Yeah. So that is The Ugly (laughs) Truth, Inside Facebook's (laughs) Battle for Domination by Shira Frangel and Cecilia Kang. (laughs)
0: That's like all I had to contribute. Um, (laughs) No, I agree. I am reading an upcoming book, uh, but I'm I'm really into it so far, uh, which is My Name's Yours, What's Alaska by Alaska, who is a famous drag queen from RuPaul's Drag Race. Sorry for spoilers, but she won All-Stars 2 and was fantastic on season 5 if you're just looking for a good season to start the show with. Uh, So she finally is releasing a book. She's known as being um, very witty, very funny, and um, and kind of shocking. Which, you know, is just like a fun combination. So in this, um, so far she's talking about her childhood, growing up, kind of what led her to become a drag queen and get into that um scene and i don't know it's really good and funny so my name's yours what's alaska look for it coming out in the next few months and with that you can find us on social media i am at it's alice time and kim is at kim the dork our amazing audio
1: editing for this episode was done by jen Zink. And if you have a few minutes, we would love it if you take some time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily, and then you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.